0: This episode of Best Girl Grip is sponsored by Share Her Journey, the Toronto International Film Festival's initiative to increase participation, skills and opportunities for women behind and in front of the camera. You can also join the movement at shareherjourney.org. Hello and welcome to Best Girl Grip the podcast that celebrates the women behind the scenes of the British film industry. I'm your host, Nicole Davis. Hello, pod pals, and welcome to the final TIFF-sponsored episode of Best Girl Grip. We're now deep into the crevices of November, which means that for the next month, the podcast will be sponsored by mince pies and amaretto hot chocolate. It's also Thanksgiving on Thursday, so it feels appropriate to say thank you to TIFF's Share Her Journey initiative for this opportunity, and thank you to everyone who's listened to the podcast so far. I've got an absolute pumpkin pie of an episode for you this week, which is to say that it's delicious. My guest is the very well-named Nicole Dorsey, a filmmaker who splits her time between Toronto and LA. Her work is screened internationally, and her debut feature film Black Conflux, a haunting exploration of womanhood, isolation and toxic masculinity set in 1980s Newfoundland, premiered at this year's TIFF. She has several short films to her name, including Arlo Alone, which was a Vimeo staff pick, and she also makes commercials for clients like Nike, Red Bull and Nestle. We spoke about the challenges inherent in moving from shorts to features, including maintaining tone and getting funded, the necessity of living frugally as a filmmaker, participating in TIFF's Filmmaker Lab this year, and the influences behind her debut feature, uh, which include Paul Thomas Anderson and Andrea Arnold. I really enjoyed my conversation with Nicole, she was very down to earth and has fantastic taste in movies, so without further ado, this is episode 36 of Best Girl Grip.
1: I went to Ryerson University and I was there for four years doing their film production programme. So that I guess that kind of kicked it off yeah. and when I I guess I was in first year or so I thought well I should probably get a job um, so I worked at, at the DVD department at uh, HMV um which I spent all my money just buying like Criterion Collection, <laughs> um, but then I got my first film set job at the CBC. I was just doing like props on mm. a on the Rick Mercer Report, okay. um, and then from there I went into like production assistant. Roles,
0: But it was pretty stri- straightforward. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong if it wasn't, but in that you knew that you wanted to get into film production because that's why you chose that oh. degree. And then it sort of,
1: yeah. There know. was no other choice for yeah. me. It was ever since I was a kid, I wanted to be a filmmaker. And then in high school, I guess um, there was like a tech class that I took. But otherwise, I spent all my time in the theater, writing plays, directing plays, designing the lighting, kind of taking over the space, I guess. <laughs> and photography, the high school I went to had a dark room um, and even a color dark room, which a lot of places don't. Yeah. So I just spent so much time printing and taking photos. So I just always wanted to tell stories. And film school seemed like the only natural step, so I only applied to film school, thinking, "Well, if it doesn't work out, like I don't know." <laughs> I'm not no sure backup what. plan. Yeah, there's no backup plan, which seems insane now because it's a hard industry mm. to succeed in. But perhaps the fact that I just never wavered from. From film, maybe that's why, I don't know, perseverance Mm. is key kind of in this
0: industry. But you knew it was a career. Obviously, at a young age, you knew that it was a viable option or something that you could pursue. Yeah, I I was just, maybe I'm like
1: blessed by just very supportive liberal parents uh, who were like, follow your dreams. (laughs) But really, no, I don't think I had any idea how on earth one accomplishes that. You know, I grew up in, uh, you know, suburban Burlington. There wasn't much access to – there's no, like, tech or something for you to go and see different kinds of films. For me, I'm like, oh, yeah, there's Catherine Bigelow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is kind of my only reference of a woman directing at right. that time. So, yeah, when I graduated film school, I felt so full of passion to create, but then no understanding of how one actually achieves that. Mm-hmm. Like, where do you get money from? How do you have this as a job where you can make a living? None of it seemed possible. And thus, I was definitely pretty depressed and uh, thinking, oh, you know, I, I guess I'll have to have a career doing another role in film. So that's why I like worked in casting a little mm-hmm. bit. I was an assistant. I became a script supervisor on TV for a couple of years and thought, okay, in between contracts, I'll make films. So I kept making short film after... I think I'm up to 12 short films wow, at this okay. point. I mean, some of them are very tiny, <laughs> you know. Um, How are you funding those? Well, only a few of them cost money, but a lot of the time it was I, I shot them, I edited them, I corralled friends. I have a series of three films that I made with people close in my life. But it was just me and them mm-hmm. making it. The first one was with... Uh, One of my best friends and collaborators, Sophia Bonsoff. we made a film called Star Princess. We were already traveling to L.A. to have a little trip, and Mm -hmm. so I wrote a story around that, and we filmed it. The second one was with my partner. Him and I were driving across the states, and so I wrote a little story, and we filmed that, Mm -hmm. and the last one was with my dad, who was visiting me. So there are like three very personal things. It cost no money. I already owned a camera. Okay. they're super lo fi mm-hmm. um, with very simplistic stories. Um, it's not like I went around getting permits. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we got away with I shot on the plane. I shot. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. So there's those. And then the like Arlo Alone,
0: one of the last ones I did, uh, we got Bravo Fact, which is through Bell. Okay. And the editing you learned in film production, your degree, or that was self taught? A little bit of
1: both. I got a base mm. in film school. And actually, we shot in film school on like 16 mil and hand Ooh. cut. So that was really where I got my base for editing, mm. which I think is invaluable. I know it is a little insane to hand cut your films, but uh, so valuable in understanding from like, you know, a tactile perspective of yeah. how f- editing works. Do you think it's informed the kind of director you are? Oh, a hundred percent. I'm in film school. You know, you're broke. Film costs money. You're thinking, I'm only going to buy two rolls of film. So let me like do pre-production <laughs> so intensely. Storyboard this out. Get all my shots in order. Uh, so you can be economic with the film stock you have, and also you don't want to hand cut like a bazillion takes. So yeah, I think for me, pre-production is a huge part of my process um, where I spend a lot of time because it just gives me freedom on the day mm. to be able to explore because I, I don't waste time figuring out even what I'm doing to start off with. I can get that done and then explore and have fun and be open creatively so yeah.
0: And so you're script supervising doing other odd jobs and making shorts when do you start developing Black Conflux?
1: Well I actually came up with the idea back in 2010 so that was only a year out of film school. I went to Newfoundland and I was in search of maybe a true crime story and I heard about these Hitchhiking crimes that had happened in the 80s. Mm. But, yeah, it just started percolating at that point. And then I went back in 2014 and I shot a short film, which was a little bit of the precursor. I mean, the character was still developing. I wasn't fully there yet, but I made that short film there. And then I wrote the draft. I think I finished the draft one at the end of 2015 and then rewrote it and rewrote it many times. (laughs) And we got funding.
0: I guess in 2017, end okay. of 2017. And did you have someone that you were like working with on drafts that you could say, you know, is this, were they giving feedback?
1: Not in the beginning. The beginning, it was, you know, I was flying solo and then I started working with the story editor, Miriam um, Raffla, who's incredible. So I had a pretty solid draft. I'd done a major rewrite on uh, Jackie, the the one character, and then I felt like, okay, now this is really in a place to take it out, and Miriam was incredible to speak with, and I showed it to a couple other people and authors, and yeah, I just, you know, they were all really good at first understanding what I was trying to accomplish, and then giving notes, which is the best kind of notes to receive. No one wants a co-writerly note where they're just trying to morph it into their own (laughs) voice so i had really good people mm. around me and what were you trying to accomplish with this film i mean it morphed over time i think it started as this i more a story about fate and coincidence and coming of age and identity um but then that concept of identity is what really grew and how our identities are shaped and whether how much are they informed by the culture Uh, around us the media around us all of that and sort of these standards of masculinity and femininity and what I guess the pressures to fit within a very rigid system um, of identity and (sighs) concepts of loneliness and isolation also came into that so it really blossomed as I discovered who these people were and
0: can you talk a bit about the the pre-production process, getting it financed and then preparing to shoot and what that experience was like?
1: Yeah, yeah, it was tough. <laughs> <laughs> it was tough. We, My uh, my one producer, uh, Michael, uh, who him and I met pretty early on in the process, he's from Montreal. So we were able to go through the telefilm office in Quebec. Mm-hmm. And they were first in. They believe in him. Subsequently, I guess they believed in me. And uh, from there, we went to the NLFDC in Newfoundland, because uh, that's where we shot, and they came in as well to support the project, and then eventually the rocket fund. Mm-hmm. So we began, I went out um, many months in advance to Newfoundland to start casting for locals, um, to start that process early, and also start scouting for locations, because I knew that, <laughs> I knew that was going to be obviously we're doing a period piece in the 1980s so that's a big factor to really secure locations and to work within our budget it was helpful to find spots that also you know kind of fit the aesthetic of the film you know haven't really changed since uh, the 70s and 80s so I went out several months for that and then I went back to LA and uh, worked from there and then I uh, went back to Newfoundland about a month and a half before we started production and my Production designer and DP came out as well, and we just, I mean, bless their souls because they invested so much of their time and effort into this film, Marie and Mel, and it really showed. Mm. Um, We needed that for a budget uh, point as well. People really went above and beyond to make it happen.
0: Did it feel like quite a big jump from making shorts or...? you'd had a lot of production experience under your belt at that point. So did it just feel like an an extension of that?
1: Definitely an extension. But I think the biggest part that I tried to be as conscious of as possible is pacing and maintaining tone. Because I had obviously done shorts and I've done a bunch of commercials as well. I'm used to being on set. I'm used to working, well, especially in commercials, working with larger crews. But I have not maintained a tone for you know an hour and 40 minutes so that was my uh one of my big focuses when working in the script and designing not just the look with marie um but also what is sound design that was a huge conversation that me and paul and evan had uh, about the film and how to just nail tone Um, I think that's really difficult on a first feature. And I hope I accomplished it, but it was definitely
0: my obsession. Mm. And did it feel like it was coming together as and when you were doing it? You know, were you ending each day thinking, okay, I think we've, like, you know, got some good material in the can? Or was it, you know, quite... A difficult experience
1: it was both it was like every range of emotion you can have there's moments where like you have butterflies in your stomach and you're giddy and you're excited and you're getting these incredible performances but you're also under an insane time you know constraint where you're like holy you know shit this is how many scenes you need me to do today like and I can't do overtime because Ella's of this age, and so I don't have that ability, and I don't want to make sacrifices creatively. So you're under the gun, and it's insane, and it's like you're running a marathon. So, you know, it, it was funny. I think everyone was surprised when they saw me at the rap party. They're like, that's what you look like? You're not <laughs> like this like, greasy, tired creature, which made me laugh. So, yeah, it's just every emotion you can imagine. But I think that rush, like the adrenaline, I think filmmakers and directors are like masochists in a way. It's so difficult and so much stress. and pressure but you love it mm. like there's you're just feeding off of it at the same time you yeah, know and we all come home and have a beer together as well <laughs> I lived at what well, we shot I lived with the DP and production designer Okay,
0: so yeah, yeah. like a close-knit family oh
1: yeah it was incredible we were like uh, yeah very much a family where we come home debrief have mm. a beer and then
0: start the madness again the next day and you mentioned that you work on commercials as well so working across all those different disciplines is that sort of you know by design for you know because you can Go off and shoot a commercial for a month and get some money, and then come back and work on a feature. Is yeah, is that how you see it? Or? I,
1: I I mean that's how it worked worked out. Uh definitely like a blessing to have come along because I make a living and I'm able to go and do these commercials. And you know I'm not an insanely huge commercial director by any means, um, so I do have the time mm. and luxury to be able to write my own stuff and keep pursuing long form but yeah I, I guess I kind of fell into commercials M- maybe I was like a snotty artsy <laughs> filmmaker before and was like yeah I'd never do <laughs> ads never <sell> yeah out. <laughs> never never and then I, you know I struggled to make a living for so long and and wasn't directing so well besides shorts I was making obviously Mm. but uh, it allowed me to keep flexing that muscle and and be able to make a living at it so it really has been a blessing.
0: Was there any point during that struggle that you felt like you know it wasn't gonna happen for you?
1: Oh all the time I mean it still feels like that sometimes.
0: How do you stay stay motivated to kind of keep yeah keep uh, grinding
1: on? One thing is, I have no Plan B. I'm so <laughs> deep into it now. <laughs> like, there's, I literally have no other thing on my resume besides film-related <laughs> things. So, I'm kind of shit out of luck in that. But I think I've just always, I don't know. I, anytime I haven't been able to tell stories, I just get very down. It's something that's lived in me for since I was a kid. So, I guess emotionally. Uh, and practically, I don't have any other option but to keep going, and you make it work. You know, I—I I, I mean, I have—I have some things that are that have helped support me. I come from you know a middle-class family and grew up in the suburbs, but I'm not from a rich family. I have always supported myself. Yeah. Um, so you just kind of scrunch and, and make do and hustle for whatever kind of contracts I could get. Um, or little jobs, and I don't live a lavish life. That's the other thing is, you know, especially commercial payments, they can be nice little sums of money. Mm-hmm. Um, but I squirrel them away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, it, yeah. yeah, I, you know, you make a little nest egg because also you don't know, like, okay, am I gonna, am I gonna book another spot in the next month, or will it be four months mm-hmm. or six months? I have no idea, so I just don't. Uh, I don't keep a big overhead I guess.
0: And obviously your debut is um, premiering here at TIFF and Mm -hmm. having been to university just around the corner like is that a big deal for you is that really exciting?
1: Yeah super exciting it's like a homecoming. I don't think uh, my family had really seen my work my extended family and they all came out which Mm. was so incredible and of course my parents they don't work in the industry and uh, as much as you talk about what you do it doesn't yeah, it doesn't 100% sink in. Yeah. So when you can be like, all right, here's what I've spent. Something tangible. Yeah, yeah. something <laughs> tangible on a big screen. There's people here <laughs> for them. It just kind of comes together. I even remember the first time I brought my dad to set, he, I had to tell him to stop taking pictures when we were rolling. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it was
1: very sweet. He was very supportive. But, yeah, no, it very much felt like a homecoming to be back in my you know home city, and I haven't lived here for a few years now, and... Uh, and TIFF is such an amazing festival, and I've been coming as a, you know, a, a film watcher for so many years, so really special.
0: And you're also here with the Filmmaker Lab. Can you talk a bit about that experience and what that has meant to you?
1: Yeah, it's been the most busy time. <laughs> um it's incredible. It's so funny with the Filmmaker's Lab. I don't know how many times I've been rejected.
0: I really Oh, my God.
1: So many. I think I was rejected so many times that I actually uh, hit that limit where you're not allowed to apply <laughs> anymore because you've been rejected so many times. But uh, I was told I had a little bird tell me that I should apply this year. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, well, I guess I'll break the rule and apply <laughs> again and it was great it it was so incredible to be surrounded by you know i guess it was 20 of us so 19 other filmmakers and from all different parts of the world some people from toronto yes but all different kinds of filmmakers Mm -hmm. and styles and ambitions You know, being a director can be lonely because you're not around other directors that much. Mm. I do have a nice circle of director friends, but um, to be in that um, environment was incredible. And to just hear experiences from other people, to have a bit of mentorship, I think, having champions for you is, like, vital Mm. in this industry. I think it's very difficult to kind of go anywhere without somebody championing you. I mean, I've been in toronto making films since i was like 18 being like hello anybody i'm here (laughs) and for the most part people like yeah cool 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 uh we don't see you yeah so i faced a lot of rejection over the years and so yeah you need that person that has some sort of position to be like hey you guys should have a look at her she's not half bad and uh it might be worthwhile. And then people start to take notice. Everyone needs that. In every field. And, you know, at Toronto I very much think Ravi, the programmer, what has been my champion here
0: at TIFF. And so at the lab are you developing your like next project? Like what's the mm-hmm. kind of the format of, you know, the the days, what you what are you working on?
1: Uh, we did a lot of talking mm-hmm. in the lab. <laughs> and, which was great and uh, so I'm working on a couple of things I'm writing a new feature that's kind of has to do with the American prison system and uh, and then a series that I'm developing with uh, Sofia Bonshoff do you feel like it's smart though to have
0: like different like formats in your back pocket
1: I don't know about formats I mean maybe I hope it's smart because that's what I got but um for me it's just what story inspires me it's What I've read about or experienced myself or something that struck me that I feel I need to share. And then after that, I figure out, okay, well, what's the best platform to tell this story? With the prison story, I'm like, it's it's a feature. It just, I guess it's instinctual how to tell the story. And with the series, uh, it's based on a true story in the 1950s in Montreal. And that just feels like a series. There's too much. Yeah that goes into it you know big ensemble and um, many pieces over it's like 50s and 70s and a little 80s Mm. so it really runs the gamut so series felt better so I format and platform doesn't really matter to me for me, it's just all about the Love story. The story deserves, yeah, yeah. And
0: where do you get your ideas from? Like you mentioned, a couple of kind of come from true stories. So where are you? Where are you sourcing those?
1: Yeah, you know, I find um, I always have character-driven pieces, but there's always these broader messages. With the prison story, um, my friend has been in prison in Illinois since he was 23, and he's actually getting out next week, oh, which wow. is incredible yeah. after eight years. And his story really touched me and, you know, seeing Ava DuVernier's The 13th and understanding more about the prison system and Mm -hmm. then obviously how that just connects back to slavery um, and racism. It's such a huge, important issue that's just a human level. Like, it's something that Mm -hmm. needs to be talked about. And, of course, there's been her documentary and there's been other films I haven't seen it yet, but Clemency. Yeah, um, I've
0: heard good things. And I just saw Just Mercy as well, which is yes. um, on similar. Yeah,
1: So they're on my festival schedule <laughs> to see. But uh, I, I wanted to tell, or I want to tell a personal story from one man's point of view, especially after he gets out and what it's like to re-enter the world when y- you're not given resources and you're also entering the world leaving a system that's meant to keep you in it. Mm. Um, They want you to be back behind bars at some point. So how do you survive that? And my friend is a very strong person and I know he's going to do well. um, So he's definitely been a a big influence to me.
0: And do you have filmmakers you like look to when you're kind of writing or, um, yeah, shooting?
1: Yeah, I mean, so many (laughs) so many pt anderson is a huge one for me uh any film in particular you got a favorite well bookie nights was the first film i ever saw of his of when i was too young to watch it i thought you were
0: gonna say first film first off and i was like whoa how young were you yeah i was too young to watch it
1: though i had snuck down into the basement my parents had rented it and told me i wasn't allowed to watch so when they went to bed one night i went down and i watched it and with uh, blown wakes obviously I saw images I'd never seen <laughs> before in my young life but there was I, I was struck by it and obviously I watched it years later with you know a bit more of a mature mind but just his his use of marrying you know the visuals with character development I I, I mean there are many that can do it well but he's just so visually dynamic. But it completely supports the emotional arc of these mm-hmm. characters. And I, I find it awe-inspiring. And, I yeah, because I do very character-driven stuff, too. You know, I'm sure there's a little bit of lynch in there, you know, bits and pieces. Um, I've always admired Andrea Arnold's ability to, to work with cast and get these very raw performances out. I love... You know, 70s American cinema. I think that definitely influences some of my visual style. Celine Scamma. I um, just saw
0: Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Oh my gosh. I am...
1: It's... it's, um, I haven't seen it yet. It's on my list because I've been in the lab, but I'm <laughs> like, I'm, yeah, I'm very yeah. excited to see her Didn't
0: work. did Were the 70s and 80s kind of a big factor? Were you looking at those era films when you were preparing for Black Conflux?
1: I did rewatch stuff, but not because I was like, oh gosh, what did this time look like? But just films that had, I don't know, visually inspired me, but it kind of ran the gamut. Mm. Like I watched everything from, I rewatched first, Bueller's Day Off. I was like, oh, I actually still like this movie. <laughs> and I watched The Conversation. I watched Three Women. I watched The Long Goodbye. I watched Blowout. I watch. I even watched like Godard. And I watched Taxi Driver. Obviously, mm. you can see some influences from that. I've watched Smooth Talk, which is definitely mm-hmm. a big influence for Jackie's character. And no one has yet pointed that out. I'm like, I feel like it's a pretty great (laughs) great influence here. Yeah, Yeah, Smooth Talk was big. I made Ella watch uh, Smooth Talk as well. Yeah, and then I watched, like, Punch Drunk Love, Tom at the Farm. Um, It really went all over the place. Yeah.
0: And then is that then informing your pre-production process? You're sitting down and you're kind of, you're planning out what shots you want to do. Yeah, is that kind of how rigorous you are?
1: Yeah, I'm obsessed with designing shots. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, Marie... My DP was incredible. And we spent... I had a lot of ideas um, beforehand. I usually take my script and then I draw shots and little storyboards all Mm. over it. And then... Her and I spent a lot of time. We watched a lot of movies together. That was a big part of the process and, you know, taking lighting references and framing references and camera movements and then came together. I brought her all my ideas of how to move the camera and then she had hers and then, you know, sometimes it'd be like, yeah, yours is better, mine's better, or let's do an amalgamation of both of them to really make it a collaboration.
0: You mentioned earlier about how directing can sometimes be quite like a lonely um, task. What's what's it like when you then suddenly are like op- you open your project which is something your baby that you've worked on for so long into that kind of big collaborative pool of people that suddenly have ideas? Is that is that exciting for you or is that you know do you struggle sometimes with like handing it over to other people?
1: No, I think it's exciting if you've hired the right people. I think that's what it's all about. It's with Marie, I saw a short film yeah, because I can be quite obsessive about image. And um, I knew I wanted to find a DP that had a similar eye to mine. And when I saw this short film of Marie's, I was like, oh, this is it. I'll never be over her shoulder because she understands framing exactly like I do. And uh, the moment we Skyped for the first time... When I guess I was we were interviewing DPs, I was like, okay, we're basically. She's like the, I'm the English version of her; she's the French <laughs> of me. And then same with uh, Melanie, uh, our production designer. You know, she read the script and she put together a lookbook. And I opened it up and I was like, she understands the vision. So I think for me, it's about being as specific as possible about my vision. And when interviewing people, really painting. A portrait for them so that they can embody that and take all their skills and resources and build upon that I'm not you know I don't do their job so they just bring so much experience and insight and For sure, if you have a better idea than me, let's do it. (laughs)
0: Like, I'm
1: not precious.
0: And I've noticed that women directors, unfortunately, sometimes have to wait longer to direct their second feature. Um, You often just see a bigger gap, you know, like five, six, seven years, whereas, you know, men often do sometimes a feature a year or a feature every two years. It's a bummer. (laughs) Is that something that, like, plays on your mind, and do you think it's it's changing where you, you feel more supported as a woman filmmaker in this industry?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, I didn't know that there was like an actual reported difference. I mean, I guess it makes sense, but I think right now I feel very supportive. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's been this uh I don't know, a little change in my career and I've been in the states for a few years now and there's been more opportunities that have opened up with me and I now have representation, so I think having a team around me that mm-hmm. wants me to succeed uh, as much as I want to succeed. Is really great, and that's a big part of it. Like I said, you need a champion. You need somebody who's going to knock on those doors for you um, and be like, "Hey, listen to her. She's got something good to say. I think you want maybe you want to invest uh, not just your time but your money into something Mm. she's doing." That's ultimately what it comes down to. Is you, you know, you need some money.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) So, uh, I hope that it's not six years before I make uh, another feature. I'll still I'll make something regardless. Mm. I've never. I've never sat around and waited. It might be small. I might have to make a short or something. But uh, it'll happen one way or another. How did the offer of representation come about? Actually, it actually came out of a short film. It was mm-hmm. crazy. I played this film festival with Arlo called Holly Shorts in L.A. And they this thing played like two years ago. It uh, a, had a resurgence, I don't know, mm. in the last couple months. But... They sent it to a production company in L.A., and they watched it and liked it and called me in for a meeting, which was uh, great. And then that meeting went well, and then they called an agent to watch it, and the agent watched it, and then they wanted to meet Mm -hmm. with me, and then I did. And then they set up meetings with more people, and then all of a sudden I had all these meetings. (laughs)
0: Yeah. And did that feel like a turning point for you? Like did you suddenly feel like there was a bit more of an engine behind your career?
1: Yeah, I mean it's kind of crazy. I felt like forever I was like how does one get representation? Do I just cold email these people? <laughs> I feel like I have enough body of work and for a long time ask it, asking around, you now how do I get an agent in the states? How do I get a manager? And then all of a sudden this past month I f- found myself uh yeah, taking uh quite a number of meetings. So, mm. maybe it's just a timing thing, and maybe I wasn't ready before, and now I'm ready and now I have this film coming out and I have other projects I'm ready to write. So, mm. maybe I would have not blown it if I had signed earlier, but I have to trust that timing uh, works in your favor, you know, in your favor. Mm. But I think that it's incredibly important to be informed because you have more agency. You have more self-agency the more informed Mm. you are and the more you can participate in that process
0: Mm. and what defines success for you because I imagine like having having made the film it's a huge accomplishment in and of itself and then having it premiere here at Toronto Mm -hmm. is that kind of like enough for you to be like I did a great job on this no no
1: No, of course not I don't I don't know I don't know if you can the bar changes Mm. every step of the way you know once upon a time the bar was just like make a film and then I did that and then the bar becomes okay like make a film with funding uh great done then okay write a feature you did it make the feature great premiere the feature great um get representation great and it's never enough I try I try now to take like a breath and sit back and be like okay Nicole like it's so painful getting to these steps like Breathe, Feel good. Feel good. Even if it's Mm -hmm. for a day, like, feel good before you're like, all right, where are we going next? I don't know. I think the moment I'm like, I have succeeded. I hope I've retired. Like, Mm -hmm. I hope that's the moment. Yeah. Um, Because otherwise, it's kind of like, what's the point of keep going? Yeah.
0: It's almost that restlessness that, yeah, is the motivator. And do you, like, take time for yourself? Like, because with this kind of freelance, the nature of the work that you do, it's probably quite easy to, to really work very very hard and nonstop. um you have to sometimes be like no i need i need some time to live and do other things
1: yeah because i realize your creativity suffers Mm. you can't just pump it out 24 7 you know the, the times i've just the times i've wasted you know spending all day staring at the computer screen being like right brain go go come up with something interesting when really like No, you should just go take – you should go for a hike. You should go for a two-hour hike because you'll do that and then write well for an hour afterwards Mm -hmm. instead of spending three hours and coming up with nothing. So I take that mentality more so with me or to have a weekend off. When you're freelance, there's no, like, punch-out clock. So, yeah, I used to, you know, start in the morning. Then I'd find, oh, it's midnight. I literally have not left the computer. I'm stiff and uncomfortable. And, and what did I really accomplish? So now I will be like, okay, Sunday, I shall do nothing related to film. But I always give the advice you need to have hobbies, but I really also need to take the advice um, myself. <laughs> yeah. Because I basically, I just like, I, I hike a lot. I live by Griffith Park. So awesome. I do that a lot. I swim and, uh, I see friends, but other I like. I'm always watching movies and TV. I just can't stop. Um, and I live right by the Los Feliz Three Theater. It's like six dollar matinees. Oh my
0: goodness! You yeah, can't stop you going. Them? I know, and they
1: play like everything the A24 comes out with. So <laughs> I'm just
0: always there. Besides your film, is there another fil- female filmmaker here at the festival that you're excited to see their work?
1: Oh gosh, I really need to dive in. But uh, yeah, Portrait of a Woman on Fire, Celine's film, I definitely want to see. I saw Rocks.
0: Mm, um, yeah, yeah. What did you think?
1: Incredible. Incredible yeah. performances. She, I actually was lucky enough, she came to do a talk at the Filmmaker Lab, awesome. and just listening to her, the way she collaborated with the writers and the actors and her process, um, awe-inspiring. Mm. Um, she makes film. well, at least that film is very different than I have made films in the past, so it was great to just hear another way of doing Mm. things i saw atlantics Mm, Um, i'm
0: seeing that tomorrow
1: you know it it kept me on until the end and it was a really refreshing film with such deep important issues then integrating this supernatural element that was still so grounded it it was very special so those are two I saw and she actually came to to the lab to talk which
0: was great. Nicole, thank you so much. It's been amazing. Thank you for downloading this episode of Best Girl Grip. I hope you are bursting at the seams with insight and inspiration. And if you need second or third helpings, there is a buffet of podcast episodes to be devoured on iTunes, Spotify and Acast. I'll be back with another serving next week. We'll be back to British accented proceedings. In the meantime, have a thankful and fruitful week.